Welcome to the Abridged Presidential Histories with Kenny Ryan, episode 26A, an interview on the origin of Teddy Roosevelt's progressivism with Alicia. I'm excited to welcome Alicia to the show today. Alicia is the host and producer of the excellent Civics and Coffee Pod, a podcast that covers lessons from history and the time it takes most people to drink a cup of coffee. It's great stuff. I'd recommend you check it out. Today, we're going to talk about an aspect of Theodore Roosevelt's origin story that I didn't have a chance to dive too deeply into during my narrative episode. We'll take a look at the root and cause of his progressive beliefs and how they shaped the country during his time in the White House. Alicia, thank you so much for your time. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. I'm excited for you to be here, too. Uh, (laughs) The first question I have to ask is, you know, when we were chatting a while ago and I asked what president might you like to come on and talk about, you said Theodore Roosevelt. Why? Um, Well, you know, 20th century history has really always been my jam. So, you know, all through high school and my college career, I definitely gravitate gravitated towards 20th century history. And obviously he's, you know, he was the first 20th century (laughs) president, really, right? 1901. Um, And I just find him infinitely fascinating. I know he's an imperfect man, like every other president that has come into office, right? Uh, There are definitely things that are troubling about him. However, uh, for me, he's kind of like top five in, in terms of the accomplishments and his impact. He's also kind of just a fascinating character, right? And I know some of that is obviously lore and, and, you know, how he's been kind of lionized throughout history. But part of that is just who he was as a, as an individual, right? He never gave up. He was very tenacious. He, you know, while um, very financially well off and, and kind of in a, a higher social standing, um, kind of had his own blows that he had to deal with, right? He, did, he wasn't a, a healthy individual um, and just kind of constantly you know, persevering. And I, I just have always found that really, really fascinating and always kind of trying to figure out why somebody like him decided he really wanted to get not just into like the presidency, but just politics and public service and all of that. So I've just always found him infinitely fascinating. (laughs) Absolutely. He he easily kind of like tops my list. If somebody like Kenny, what president would you want to like hang out with? I'd be like, uh, Teddy Roosevelt. It 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 would be fun. (laughs) Yep. So when we're talking about the progressivism of Teddy Roosevelt, what are we talking about here? Is this environmentalism, civil service reform, economic reform, all of the above? What do you have in mind? I mean, I, I think all of it, right? I, I mean, he was, you know, while some of his quotes and views are obviously seen today as a little problematic, to oh, put it lightly, yeah. <laughs> um, I do think for a majority of, of, his, of his views of the time, they were pretty progressive, right? Um, one of the things that I always liked about him was he was pretty progressive, even in women's rights. Uh, he wrote a paper in college, um, and it was called the practical the practicability of equalizing men and women before the law. And in that paper, he argued that women should not be forced to take their husband's surname and that they should be able to inherit property. So I kind of am like, well, that was a very um, fresh take on on women's yeah. rights. So I, you know, I've always loved that. Obviously, I think, you know, he's well known for his environmental protections, right? Um, again, they came at a cost, but, uh, you know, the the millions of acres of land that he did, uh, that he tried to preserve in the country, and and even the civil service reform. I mean, he just, he see, he, to me, was kind of a, he's a practical guy, right? He always looked at things of like, okay, there's a problem here, 
And how do we, how, how can we fix this? And I think he's also one of the first presidents that really understood the power of media and the power of like getting people on his side and, and kind of taking his, his argument to the people. Because there was even an article he wrote uh, in the 1890s, I want to say, in the Atlantic Monthly, when he was talking about civil service reform and why he thinks it was, you know, so good. And it's, you know, I read it and I thought, wow, this is pretty fascinating. And he lays it out. And it's not, you know, some flowery language. It's not hidden in policy, right? He's just... uh, yeah, he's just knows how to make his arguments very well. And obviously also the economic reform. So I think he's kind of just progressive in so many ways, right? He had all of these things and all of these new ideas that, you know, men before him, either due to circumstance or, or lack of vision, just had other opinions and had other priorities. Yeah, the, that article about the surnames or, or the student paper about the surnames is fascinating to me. I hadn't heard that before. And I know my fiance would love to subscribe to his newsletter based on like that alone right there. <laughs> Um, where did all this come from? Because as you mentioned, like this is not in vogue. Some of it is like, like still today, like the surname thing. That's that's something not everybody goes for. Where did this come from? Let's start with civil service reform. Where, where did that originate? Well, you know, in the stuff that I was reading about him, um, you know, I'm by no means an expert, but in the things that I've read about him, it just seems like he, it was practical, right? Um, in reading the art, the article that he wrote for Atlantic Monthly, he was basically just saying, hey, I understand that as a new administration comes in, there are a, a number of posts, political posts that really, you know, need to be supportive of the individual who's an office's vision, right? You're, Secretary of War should probably agree with you on your war policy. Your (laughs) Secretary of State should probably agree with you on your foreign policy, right? These are people that you don't want to hold over from prior administrations if they're not from the same political party. Um, So I get that. I understand that. But where, you know, who does it take to deliver mail, right? Delivering mail does not, you don't need to be a Democrat. You don't need to be a Republican. You don't need to be a whatever. Insert your political point here. Right. And so it just seemed like he had a he had a nose for good government, um, and he he just seemed like he was really committed to um, making things as streamlined as possible, and he was very good at articulating that. Um, you know, his argument was, by the time it takes to bring in a new postmaster and bring in all these new civil servants and train them on the roles right. of the of their job, you're yeah. you're basically walking out the door. So (laughs) it was a lack of efficiency. Right. And I just think, um, you know, that's, that was, that's what drove him, I think, in terms of civil service reform. What do you think? One of the other things that jumps to my mind when I think about him is in in his youth. And this is actually one of the things, the fun thing about reading through history from like kind of in chronological order is seeing people show up like 30 years before they're anybody. And they only really get mentioned because, you know, like with a wink and a nod that in 30 years, they're going to be somebody. But, you know, when you're back at like Chester Arthur and uh, Rutherford B. Hayes and all those guys and they're uh, b- battling with Roscoe Conkling, uh, Teddy Roosevelt's father like comes in the picture and the president tries to appoint him to clean up this corrupt New York customs house. And Roscoe Conkling, this this corrupt boss who wants his guy in the custom house, so we can make sure all those kickbacks are coming his way, blocks it. It becomes a big, ugly political fight. And then Teddy Roosevelt's like father like gets sick and dies almost immediately afterwards. And mm. and I have to wonder, like, do, do you what do you see when you see that happen to someone? Like, do you think that leaves a, a stamp on them where they say, you know what? I am pro civil service reform because I've seen bad civil service and I 
I, I think it, it might have played a role in killing my dad. I mean, I, I think that's a that's definitely a good point, too. And I think a lot of his progressivism at some point or another can be tied to his youth. Right. Oh, so yeah. watching his father go through that and fight that fight and, and, and become sick, um, I think, is also a very, a very good point as, as well. Um, yeah, I, that was that was a good connection. <laughs> what, where do we see it play out in his career? Like you, you've mentioned he like writes some cool articles about that. Mm-hmm. You know, if like when he's president or when he's been in office. I, I mean, he was at one point on a civil service commission, like for the yes. federal government. So where do we see this play out throughout his career? Um, I know, it's, I think civil service, I'm drawing a blank in terms of it, when he was president, uh, what he did. I, I'm I, not, yeah. Yeah. Um, I know like during his presidency, he was very much more about environment and mm. um and doing um, like food and drug. He did that. He did the law for the food and drug administration and big business reform. Right. He was really about economic reform as president. Um, and I think I am. Just, I can't think of anything off the top of my head as president that he did with civil service reform. Um, but perhaps he left that to the states to decide. You know, one thing I did see that he did is he did double the amount of competitive service employees in the U.S. government. So he the, the federal government grew a lot and he made sure that when it grew a lot, it was merit based appointees. Um, what, what, one, one source I saw said that it was the first time that merit based employees outnumbered spoil system appointees wow. in the federal government. So that, that that's all I could find as president. But that's a big one right there. Yeah, that is. And, you know, it uh, it would. I think it helps create a a stronger workforce, right? And Absolutely. he kind of set the set this president, right? Of like this is how we should actually be filling our government, um, making it efficient. And I think due to the successes, right, of of that decision, um, it allowed other presidents to kind of continue the trend. I think it was very much a trendsetter as a president. And, and you know, it's funny, like the sticking power of of creating when like establishing, like if we're going to grow the business, the government, it's going to be merit based. It's not going to be tied to parties. Right. You saw that a lot more in recent times, you yeah. know, where, where, where current presidents, uh, I'll, I'll just got to say like Donald Trump, he struggled a lot with feeling that there was this deep state out to get him. Really, that's just, you know, professional people who are like, they're loyal to the Constitution, loyal to the country. They are not political partisan operatives. Right. And at least in Trump's case, he really didn't like that. But he could not undo a foundation that Teddy Roosevelt laid 100 years earlier. <laughs> True, though he tried. He tried. <laughs> Unsuccessfully so. Yeah. Oh. Man, wow. So uh, let, let's jump to a, another area of yeah. TR's progressivism, uh, his environmentalism. Mm. Where did that come from? Well, you know, I think, again, this is just kind of my my armchair psycho, psychotic or psychotic. Get me, me with the armchair psychologist. Yeah. Psychologist. There we go. Psychology. Armchair psychology. We got it. Yes. My armchair psychology uh, take on it is I oh, I think, you know, nature had always been his healing place. Mm. Right. Mm. Um, you know, he was a sickly child and he, he spent time in nature. He was always hiking and doing physical pursuits and hunting and all of that. Um, and even after his first wife passed away, you know, he oh, yeah. went out ranching and was like, I need to be in nature. I need to get away from everything. Um, and so I think, you know, to a certain extent, that's where it, it came from. Right. Um, and he was also a guy that was all about fair. And so even though he was a hunter, um, you know, he was trying to be fair <laughs> without being a hunter. Yeah. Um, you know, so I think, you know, from my c- kind of perspective and my reading of it is, I think it, 
you know, knowing how much the the environment and nature soothed him as an individual throughout his life. I think he wanted to make sure that that was protected, not only for his children, but for his children's children and, and future generations to come because he saw, he saw the healing power of, of the, you know, these beautiful hillsides and mountains and trees and everything that this country had to offer. Um, and I think too, he saw, we were kind of coming to the end of that gilded age, right? That big industrial revolution where yes. it's all expansion, expansion, expansion. Um, and I think he kind of saw the writing on the wall of like, we can't continue to do this, right? We are dealing with finite resources. Um, I know he did some explorations where he would take specimens and, and stuff, you know, so he was also <laughs> like kind of a pseudoscientist too, right? Yeah. Like he yeah. loved learning about this kind of stuff. Um, and so I think, you know, just knowing that and knowing, having that experience and being there, he realized, you know, we can't, we cannot keep living to the excess in which we're living in now. And we need to do some really concrete actions to try to protect this land so that we have it for future generations. What's that uh, Dr. Seuss book where like the, the, the guy exploits the land? Is it Horton Hears a Who? Is it is Horton Hears a Who? I think is that an elephant one. I can't That's remember. the elephant one. I know. We got it. I know which one you're talking about, though. <laughs> I, it, sometimes like seeing Teddy Roosevelt enter the scene, it feels like he read that book and then he looked around and he was like, huh, <laughs> even though that book didn't exist yet. But right. uh, yeah, you're right. Well, you know, he does a lot what, what's your favorite thing he does for the environment like of all the things that he does which one are you like man i like that one all the national parks so i live in california and yeah. so literally down the road from my house i mean it's down the freeway but it's down the road from my house is muir woods <laughs> and i grew up hiking all over muir woods i love it to pieces it is one of the most gorgeous trails i've ever been on in my entire life um and you know to me that like that's a tangible lasting legacy knowing that he took action to kind of preserve this land for the people um that's one of my personal favorites but also just any national park i know that he was very involved in the grand canyon and mm. i believe yosemite and all of those i just um that knowing that we have these parks, right. And especially again, sorry to, to keep bringing it back to the prior occupant of the white house, but you know, he was very much not against or yeah. not for that. Right. He was very yeah. much like drill baby drill or get rid of this. We don't, who cares. Um, and so again, a visionary guy, you know, I know again, that that preserving of those millions of acres was uh, at the expense of, of our uh, indigenous population. But um I'm still appreciative of, of what, that it's here and that it's protected and that we have it and we can enjoy it as kind of as American citizens that that's so rare, I think throughout the world. Yeah. I, I, I love national park system. I live up in Washington state, a couple of States North of you, and I I'm out in those mountains all the time, Yep. you know, and, and it, it is just so beautiful and uh, awesome. It, you know, it's interesting though, we're kind of the mix of his legacy. And you kind of hinted at this earlier. He mm -hmm. sure. On one hand, he sets apart all this land that, that we so appreciate today, but you know, he also did something like the national reclamation act of 1902, right. where he, he kind of looks at the West and he views his, his take on conservation is we still want to use a lot of this land. We just don't want to overuse it. So let's build a lot of dams. Mm -hmm. Let's extend irrigation. And it's one of these things that like as a, I grew up in Texas, where as a kid, it's like we have dams everywhere. Texas, fun fact about Texas, only one natural lake in all of Texas. Every other lake is formed by dams. I don't yeah, know. I love to call that. the one out at parties because that's the kind of guy <laughs> at parties. 
Um, and then up in Washington, though, where we have these ams, it's like, oh, it's actually it's doing some kind of terrible things to the salmon up here. So it's it's interesting how in mm. some areas, you know, the things he did that while, while he thinks he's like, oh, this is going to be great. We're going to save all this land. We're going to expand irrigation. We're going to do all this. It has like native consequences that he didn't see coming. And, and I wonder, you know, like if he were around today, if, if a Teddy Roosevelt, you know, jumped onto the scene, jumped out of a time portal. Would, and he looked back and that would he be like, you know what? Let me tweak that law. Those, those are I, I, did, I did not mean to you know do that, have that effect. I mean, I might be biased because, you know, if I've already committed to the fact that he's one of my top five presidents, but I, I would like to believe that, yes, he would, um, yeah. you know, and even you, I know he has a bad rap these days because of of his his views on race and, and things sure. of that nature, which, of course, not not OK. Um, and not to put a butt in there, but um, it, he looked to scientists of the time. And unfortunately, the scientists of the time, their their methods were questionable, right? Like if Charles, Charles Darwin is telling you that there's a, a difference between the races, right? Who's who's he to stop them? So um, I think because he was so fascinated by learning, right? He was a historian. He was uh, a researcher. He wrote, you know, so many books. Um, I would, I would like to believe that, given the hindsight of 2020, and said, "Hey, if you do this, it's going to do all these great things. But hey, it's going to also do these kind of poor things." I feel like he would find a way to to curtail the the law a little bit, change it a little bit, and make it best for for as many people as as possible. Because it it seemed to be. That was his driving, one yeah. of his driving missions, right? Greater good. He was yeah. very much a greater good guy. Absolutely. He, he's, what is it? He's, I guess, like Spock, you know, yeah. the, <laughs> the many over the one, I suppose. Yeah. Um, what, what, what about his economic reforms? This is the one that is most surprising to me because this is a guy who is born with a silver spoon in his mouth and you mm-hmm. don't often see those guys come out as economic progressives. I, I saw one article that listed Teddy Roosevelt just behind Washington and Jefferson among our wealthiest presidents all time. I think it was like number four or five on the list. Why does a guy with that background become an economic reformer? Yeah. I, you know, again, I think it's armchair psychology of he, he was very cognizant of the fact that he was born into a place of privilege, right? He, he was different than most of the, you know, the men even of his age of, he, he understood that, you know, government should be there for the greater good. He wasn't about, you know, just pro-labor at the sake of business, but he wasn't about to be pro-business at the sake of labor. Um, and I think he was one of the first ones to really understand the ideas of predatory wealth, right? I think he might have been one of the first, if not the first, uh, you know, major politician to kind of re- reference this wealth disparity as being very problematic and and potentially causing lots of issues. Um, and so I think that's where his idea from this of the square deal came from, right? He, he worried about a counter revolution and I know he was not, he was, um, very against socialism. And so he was very worried that, Hey, if we don't do little checks here and there, he didn't want, you know, he wasn't really, I mean, it, his actions that he took actually were fairly wide sweeping, but in his brain, he was he wasn't going to be a guy who was going to say, "Hey, we're going to do all of these things on the on the side of labor." He just, you know, let's tweak this a little bit. When you when you play out of bounds, we're gonna we're gonna 
reel you back in. But hey, if labor, if you're being crazy, we're going to also reel you in a little bit. We're going to say, hey, no, we're going to bring this in and through the hands of the government. So um, yeah, I think just having that that presence of mind of knowing that he was was very lucky. But I'm curious to, to know, did you find anything in your research that kind of gave you a hint as to why he just was so about economic reform? Yeah, you know, one of the things that jumped out uh, in what I've been reading was uh, maybe, again, the example of his dad, you know, his dad being another guy who inherited like this was family wealth, you know, it came from like TR's granddad who made it like the 1830s. And uh, his dad was like this great philanthropist. And he loved to spend his time like setting up children's hospitals and uh, giving to the needy and and supporting all those causes. And I, I have to think that TR saw that and he was like, okay you know, it's okay to be super wealthy. Like my family, we're not giving away all our money, but we're, we're, we're helping other people. And so you should be doing that. And if you're not, you're, you're kind of screwing up the system. And I think too, you mentioned like social, socialism was out there. You know, mm-hmm. you, you do have Eugene Debs and the Socialist Party are running for president at that time. You know, you, you don't have, uh, say, a communist countries out there yet. You know, communist Russia is still about 17 years away. But you do have socialism out there. And so I think he he doesn't want that. Like he, he's, he doesn't want to go that far. And he just sees that the pressure he looks back and he looks at the past 30 years and he sees, you know, the railroad strike of 77. He sees the Pullman strike of 1894. You know, he sees the Haymarket bomb, bombing in the uh, 1880s. And, and he's like, you know, this is a teapot that is just about to explode if we don't create some ways to relieve that pressure and help these people out. Yeah. And, and and that just seems to me to like be one of these really underlying causes, uh, inspirations behind a lot of what he's going to do. And this seems also like an area where he does do quite a bit. Let me like run through some of the things that I saw, yeah. you know, as a New York state assemblyman, he filibustered and killed a corrupt state bill that would have raised rates on everybody, if I remembered right, <laughs> to like nobody's benefit. It just right. would have made everything more expensive to, you know, pad rich people's wallets. Uh, he's, of course, a famous trust buster. Uh, in 1902, he becomes the first president to intercede on labor's behalf in a strike of mine workers against coal mine operators. Prior to this, every president, if they get involved, they send in the troops to break up the strike. You know, what are some of the things that caught your mind? Like, is it that kind of stuff or what stuff comes to your mind when you think TR as a progressive economic champion? What's he doing that impresses you? I mean, the coal strike, I think, obviously, is one of the top top ones and kind of knowing having the the foresight to know okay we can't drag this out this is again greater good this is where his pragmatism comes out right um that's one of the big ones that i think kind of the big guy um the i believe it was the hepburn act of 1906 where it gave the interstate commerce commission um much more teeth right much more ability to actually take take action against this stuff uh the the big uh monopolies and, and whatnot. Yeah. Um, those to me are the, kind of like the two, the big ones. And the fact that he was like willing to, to push for it, right. It's not enough to sign the piece of legislation. If the guy behind the the pen, isn't willing to say now, okay, now go get it, sue him. Let's do this. Um, so those for me are kind of like the top, the top pieces of the legislation I always find. So we had never seen a president anywhere close to this progressive before Theodore Roosevelt. How did his presidency, do you think, kind of change the balance of power in American politics between the powers of progressivism and conservatism? Is it a big moment? Is it a pivot moment? 
Is that overblown? What do you think? Well, I mean, I think he kind of took charge in a way that, you know, very few presidents before him did, right? Um, I think up into his presidency, uh, he was the, up until um, FDR, excuse me, he used the most executive orders under his administration. I could have that wrong, but um, I think he understood the power, like I mentioned, of the press and he came of age at a time too, or he came not came of age, but he came, he was president at the time where independent press was really kind of coming right before then it was a lot of party press. So you had your Republican newspapers, you had your Democrat newspapers, right. And for the first time, really, it wasn't perfect journalism, but we start to see independent journalism. And I think he understood that more so than any of president before him and to a certain extent some presidents after him um i think fdr was also very good at at working the press and and making media work for him versus him working for the media um and i think he made his presidency kind of the center of american politics whereas before it was like congress and senate right um and he did that because you know he partially because of his personality, right? Like he was such a boisterous, energetic guy. It's kind of hard to ignore him. (laughs) (laughs) But I also think, you know, that he, he understood that if he took his case directly to the people and now for the first time, really he could, right. It wasn't, if you bought this paper, you got it. No, if you bought the, you know, any paper, he, he was right there. Um, And I think too, like the progressivism was successful in essence because of his policies, right? So he was able to start the road of progressivism and because his policies were so successful and because people responded so well, you know, people could finally see the government working for them and not the party boss, right? It wasn't about party systems anymore. It was like, oh, here is a national government that's working for me. Um, And I think that helped lead to this whole progressive movement, which we see, I think, explode under FDR, um, that I think it led clout to the idea that government could be progressive, that government could be on in the hands of the people. And I think that's kind of what leads him as, you know, makes him the progressive president, right? Because he was so successful at, at these policies and, um, and, and arguing those points. What do you think the lasting legacy of Roosevelt the progressive is? Oh, I mean, his tangible legacy, obviously, is the parks and on all the land, right? Um, I I also really admire his his ability to take things to the people, um, and I think he kind of opened that door. I know, you know, presidents did stump speeches and talked to people and issued press releases and things of that nature, but I think um, kind of being the people's president. Right. I I think he really kind of started that. And then also to me, he's always going to be the first modern president. Right. Mm. He was the first to, you know, um, to to write, you know, be before be foreign center. And so that's why I just I always feel like you've got your land, you've got kind of his personality, right? Um, not not even ignoring all the, the Rough Rider and his yeah. military and all that other stuff that he did. I just think, you know, the, the national parks for me is probably going to be the, the big one. 
I, I feel like the legacy of TR that I'm surprised no company has grabbed on yet is you can accomplish a lot if you drink a gallon of coffee a day, as you reportedly <laughs> did. Like, why is there not a Teddy Roosevelt coffee company out there? You, you got everything you need so, right there in that great story. <laughs> yeah, you're not wrong. Um, what lesson, the last question I love to ask everybody, what mm-hmm. lesson in leadership do you think we could learn from Roosevelt and how he pursued his progressive agenda? I think definitely he was a man who understood that compromise, uh, even if it was small and slow, it was still um, would lead to to progress. Right. That, you know, compromise and and kind of giving taking an inch by inch uh, as much as he could was still progress. It wasn't large sweeping progress. And I think, you know, we as Americans today uh, struggle under that, right? Because we want things to be fixed immediately. And if it doesn't happen in one big sweeping bill, then we think it's a failure. And I think for me, he's somebody that really kind of um, really showed that, you know, compromise is possible in politics. And compromise actually gets things done and compromise act will help both sides, right? You have your conservative, you have your liberal, you have your whatever. Um, and if you can compromise and meet the middle road, you can actually do some great things for the country. So that's something for me that I think will always uh, stand out for me. Um, I, again, I've said this a couple of times, I think he really understood the power of messaging. I don't think, I mean, definitely he, he is a big personality, but I honestly don't think that he would have had half the legacy that he has today if he didn't, you know, also show you and tell you what he did. Right. And make the (laughs) argument for why he did some stuff. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, it would just be like, oh, yeah, Congress set aside all of these lands. It wouldn't be Teddy Roosevelt, the conservationist president. Um, And I think, you know, he also knew when to take a stand. I know there was a couple of times in his administration when he was trying to uh, set aside public lands and Congress was trying to attach a trailer bill that said, hey, you can't do this. Um, And he worked his way to figure out a way to undercut Congress and still get what he wants. And so I think, you know, he picked his battles. And so um, I think for me, it's it's about understanding compromise, understanding the power of a good message and knowing when to take a stand. But I'm curious, what what do you feel like you've learned? No, I I feel like one of the things that that I see from him in terms of of leadership as a political leader is I think he he understood that Americans love someone who will fight for them. Mm -hmm. And so he was always very quick to portray himself as someone who will fight for them. He, you know, he was Colonel Roosevelt fighting for liberty (laughs) on the islands. He was he was the president. He was fighting the corporations for them, you know. He was always happy and he was strategic. And when he did it, like you yeah. said, but when he did it, he wanted everybody to know that, you know, I walk quietly and I carry a big stick. <laughs> yes, he did. Awesome. Uh, if you'd like to hear more from Alicia, please check out the civics and coffee pod and give her a follow on Twitter at civics pod or find her online at civics Thank you for your time, Alicia. Thanks, Kenny. <laughs> Thank you for listening to today's episode of Abridged Presidential Histories. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe, leave a five-star review on your podcast listening platform of choice, and tell your friends and family about the show. Just find one friend, say, hey, check out the show, and I'd appreciate it. You can also follow the show on Facebook at Abridged Presidential Histories or on Twitter at APH Podcast. 
If you'd like to support the show, you can look it up on Patreon or go directly to www.patreon.com slash histories. This helps me buy books and pay to host the show, and thank you to everyone who's contributed so far. The music in today's podcast is a public domain recording of the United States Army Old Guard Fife and Drum Corps. In our next episode, I'll be joined again by Norwich University Dean of Liberal Arts Ted Cohn to discuss how Theodore Roosevelt was made in New York City. That's next time on Abridged Presidential Histories.